for most people, they actually transform through a relatively difficult time in their life, like a loss of a loved one or a near-death experience or an illness or a divorce or losing a job, you know, tons of different, you know, hitting bottom with an addiction. So some people have post-traumatic stress from those experiences, but some people have post-traumatic growth. And like, why? Why do some people have that? Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Cassandra Veaton, Senior Fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, an expert on the art and science of transformation. Cassandra came to Esalen to help people facilitate their process of change and to consider how peak experiences, extraordinary moments, and awe stimulate growth. She also came to speak about the transformative potential of pain, how sometimes hitting bottom can help us shake free from periods of inertia. In this wide-ranging discussion, we also touched upon the importance of a holistic approach to psychotherapy, how to engage in productive argumentation, and how to create a realistic yet aspirational vision for the future. Cassandra Veaton, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you. It's great to be here. You are a senior fellow at IONS, also known as the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and you worked there for 18 years as a president and CEO. And just to foreground this discussion, I I was wondering if you could speak about the meaning of the word noetic and and the mission of IONS. Sure. Well, the Institute of Noetic Sciences was founded in 1973 by the Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth person to walk on the moon. And on his way back to the Earth from space, he had the window seat in the space capsule and he was rotating, looking at the moon and the sun and the stars and the earth and um, he had what he called an epiphany you know where he felt a sense of oneness with everything he saw and felt like there was a intelligence or divinity shining through everything that there was a sort of cosmic order a sense of bliss and peace and belonging um, that he had never experienced before and also looking at the earth from space had a really deep internal sense of despair about the inaccuracies of our current worldview and what they were leading to in terms of degradation of the environment and war and inequity of resources and you know, he felt like he knew these things at the core of his being. It was almost like a direct download from the universe. And he was trying to figure out, like, I know this more than I even know things that I've learned in the lab or that people have taught me. What kind of knowledge is this? And he found the Greek word noetic to describe an inner form of knowing, a very authoritative, subjective, but very unshakable knowing that happens inside. But what about the mission of IONS? What is the the stated goals of the organization? Well, IONS is really trying to bring together um, scientific exploration and personal discovery in terms of consciousness and trying to find out at the nexus of the sort of external way of knowing, the typical way of knowing, and then that internal way of knowing, which sometimes is religious and spiritual, and sometimes it's just... um, you know, subjective, when you bring together those ways of knowing, can you find solutions for humanity and the planet that would have eluded you just using the external form or just using the internal form? So it's 
bringing together science and spirituality to try to enhance thriving for people in the planet. So I'm curious a little bit about how you came to go, go on this path. I know that you completed your research training in behavioral genetics. So how does this fit into the complex interplay of, of subjects to which you've dedicated your career? My dad was a biochemist, a scientist, and an atheist, you know, at least agnostic maybe. And my mom was a psychotherapist and was into Jungian symbolism and really more in the, to the inner world. So I always had those two aspects of myself. And then um, in my teenage years, I sort of reached an existential crisis where I was like, you know, what what is all of this about? You know, I really felt like I couldn't, I grew up in Southern California and it was a great upbringing with great parents and, but you know, it was sort of, um, tract homes and soccer games and malls and high school. And I was just like, there, what, what's the purpose, you know? And then like many people, I found some mind expansion through using drugs. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'm starting to have these experiences of, you know, big, universe and spirit and oneness and interconnected and seeing clarity about things. Um, but then of course, drugs are not really like a sustainable way to continue a practice. <laughs> so, um, so then I took a class in Buddhism when I went to undergraduate school and I still remember literally like the size of the classroom and the desks and just looking at the teacher and the chalkboard and just being like, okay, that makes sense. Like that's the first thing I've heard that makes sense. And so I got really interested in meditation and Buddhism and ended up going to the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is one of the first universities that brought together Eastern philosophy and Western psychology in San Francisco. Um, but by the time I got done with my training there in clinical psychology, I was like, okay, but this is now all completely subjective. It's, you know, we don't know if any of this stuff is number one, real and number two, can we generalize it to large groups of people to make a big difference? And so I said, well, I'm still going to continue this path for myself, but I really want a scientific perspective in addition to this. And at the time, I really hadn't heard of anybody doing that. So I went to UCSF and did science for 12 years in behavioral genetics and kind of kept my meditation and spirituality practice in the in my free time. And by the time I finished that 12 years, I was like, OK, this is all too objective, you know, it was like Goldilocks. Like I was like, you know, nobody here cares at all about the soul or the spirit or even the personal experience of anyone. They just care about the brain and the cells. So I went and looked up science and spirituality in my internet browser and found the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was like 10 minutes from my house, never heard of it, went to visit them. And I immediately started working there and was there for 18 years and now still a fellow. Amazing. Little did you know that you would become the CEO of the organization. Didn't know that for sure. Amazing yeah. things can happen from internet browsers. I found that. I found <laughs> Esalen yes. in the same way, yeah. you know, probably 16 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Some in the past, we wouldn't have been able to find these places, you know, you would have had to travel for a lifetime to find it. And now you just look it up and there it is. It's that paying attention to synchronicities that I've yes. heard you speak about as well. Yeah. And that really was, I mean, IONS has been a destiny job for me. There's been many times there that I've felt like I'm meant to be here. This is, you know, my, it's an honor. I mean, it's an absolute honor to be able to do that kind of work. 
So this dovetails nicely with the work that you're doing at Esalen right now. You're here teaching about transformation. Talk to me about the science of transformation. Yeah, well, we did this series of studies at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. My career actually started um, working in drug treatment centers. So when I was 19, I started in a Synanon Treatment Center, which some of your listeners will remember. Um, old school gestalt, I don't even know if it's real gestalt, but, you know, attack therapy and games and role playing and costumes and, I mean, really wild stuff. I worked there for a couple, a few years and then uh, worked at another treatment center for three years. So I really got to watch addiction both when people were able to succeed in quitting their addiction and when people failed. And I noticed at the time it was very difficult to predict who was going to succeed and fail. Like the A plus client who was compliant and super into everything and super engaged, you know, he'd like go have a drink the day after his graduation. And then like the troublemaker would be like, I've been clean five years, you know? And it was like, okay, what, why, what is the difference? So I was always really interested in that. And then at IONS, um, our studies were really about, in fact, they started from a man who was in his 60s and he's very successful, very wealthy um, finance entrepreneur and beautiful family, lived in LA, but he was very depressed in his 60s, like really meaningless, hopeless, like I don't care, you know? And so a friend of his brought him to Esalen and he was kind of a, you know, another, I don't know about this stuff. Right. And he was in a gestalt workshop going, I don't, you know, I don't even like this, but he went out on the deck and he had this experience where he kind of like Edgar Mitchell's experience. He, you know, the boundaries of his body disappeared. Everything became light, you know, the light on the water filtering through the trees, the sound of the birds and dolphins jumping and, he just was overwhelmed with emotion and, you know, bliss. It was like one of those Samadhi experiences. And, you know, he was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, oh, there is, like, I am connected to everything. And he went back to, you know, be a funder of the first micro lending in third world countries and um, just reoriented his life around altruism and service and to this day, he's still, he's like 97. I went to see him, you know, a couple of years ago, he's like in his office, you know, and, um, he really wanted to find out what happened to him and if we could make it happen for other people. And so then we started this long series of studies where we investigated all of this, you know, what really does help people change, what helps people integrate aha moments into their actual lives, as opposed to just leaving them sort of in the dust, like, Whoa, that was weird. Um, or for most people, they actually transform through a relatively difficult time in their life, like a loss of a loved one or a near death experience or an illness or a divorce or losing a job, you know, tons of different, you know, hitting bottom with an addiction. So about 70% of people actually transform through that kind of ex an experience. So some people have post-traumatic stress from those experiences, but some people have post-traumatic growth and like, why, why do some people have that? So that was the big research question. Um, so after all that research, we've put together a model, um, that I call the ecosystem of change, which are the elements that people can introduce into their lives that create the ideal conditions under which the process of change can take place. A few of the main principles of the program are 
number one, that you, it's unlikely that you'll be able to succeed attacking change directly, that ideally you put into place these internal and external conditions that make the change that you want to make possible. So if you wanted to, um, I don't know, let's say you wanted to be more creative and that's a big change you want to make in your life instead of this, like, okay, get more creative, take it, you know, take a creativity class and, you know, you got to be more creative. You would just start to say, okay, what would, what would need, what would my house need to look like in order for me to be creative? What would the context be? How could I connect with communities of people who are being creative? What kinds of creativity practices could I subscribe to? What kind of tools could I use? What could be a new narrative in my life about being a creative person? Is there any healing I need to do from the past around this idea of creativity. Maybe people told me, you know, you're just not any good at art. Like don't even go down that road or whatever happened to you or things that you did to other people that you need to like resolve self-forgiveness or self-compassion. And then when you set all of those in motion, the increase in creativity almost happens as a side effect. It just happens. So it's kind of like you create a garden and you have soil and sunlight and stakes in the ground and water and nutrients, and you do have to plant a seed, you know, but then the seed grows and your job is not to pull the seedling, the sapling out of the seed. It's to make sure the air and the water and the nutrients and the stakes are all good. And that's kind of how it is for your life. So that's one aspect of the course. The other principle, one of them is what we call radical inclusion, which is when we are trying to make a change either in ourselves or even out in the world, it's not likely that you will be able to eliminate some part of yourself. Like you're just going to be able to get rid of it. Um, so there's lots of talk about, you know, let go and you know, let go of that old limiting belief. And, you know, it's probably not the case that you'll be able to eliminate most of your addictions and neuroses and you might be able to change your behavior, but they're still going to live in there. And so it's more about finding out how you can cohabitate with some of these aspects of yourself, how you can demote them out of the driver's seat and at least into the back seat, if not into the trunk, you know, um, or another way to say it is like turning down the volume on the radio station, you know, the radio station is still going to be there. Um, but you can engage in practices where you're able to turn down the volume a little bit on some of the less helpful parts of yourself. I remember interviewing Ram Dass once for one of our studies and I said, you know, so what, what are the outcomes of these transformative moments and practices? And he said, well, you don't lose your neuroses. You just have a different relationship to your neuroses. Mm -hmm. So he said, you know, it's like, I have jealousy and I just say, Oh, jealousy, my old friend, your little schmoo, come on up on my lap. You know, it's a different relationship to those aspects of ourselves that are, we don't love as much at right now, but through some compassion and love, they can be almost composted into something new. 
you, you also help people with speaking, tapping into the inner wisdom, that truth, getting in touch with their truth in order to make the a message that they're projecting resonate. Yeah, well, we did a ton of research on how people transform their worldviews. This is individuals going through experiences that they've had in their own lives where maybe they um, realize that they need to change from, you know, acquisition and accomplishment and ego-driven pursuits to being of service and having more meaning and hope and joy and purpose in their lives. And we examine tons of these transformations, people's stories and teachers of transformation and methods and came up with a model that we published in a book called Living Deeply. And it's what I now teach um, as how we change and why we don't. So I was happily doing all that work and working with lots of individuals. And then um, when the election happened in 2016, and there was such a huge shift in the politics toward what I thought was a direction that was negative, you know, really moving us decades backward in our thinking, our progressive thinking about um, civil rights and human rights and women's rights and environmental justice and um, I sort of just panicked, you know, I was like, okay, what are we going to do? What? And I really was stunned for maybe two months. And I thought maybe I need to quit ions and just go work for, you know, a think tank, something, you know, something that's going to do something. And then I realized you have to take the exact same principles that you've learned about how people transform their own consciousness to how we try to help change other people's consciousness, whether it's around climate action or civil rights or all, all of these things that we all care about, prison reform. Um, the big problem is that most people who are working for good things in the world um, have a very unskilled way of doing so. So, you know, when we're trying to get our message across about something that we care about, we tend to be hyper informative where we just tell people over and over and over, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Like here are 17 graphs about how the sky is falling. When we know that information really is only probably about 10% of what changes people's minds. Mm. And then we try to motivate them through making them feel bad or guilty or scared or threatened or, you know, we're all going to die. Polar ice caps. Right. You know, and what happens when people get into threat is that they naturally revert to their most comfortable spot. So it's actually the least effective way of getting someone to shift their mindset to get them threatened and scared. And that's true for, let's say, a doctor working with a patient. Like, if you keep eating like this, you're going to die. Or if we keep treating the planet like this, we're all going to die. It doesn't mean we shouldn't speak truth. I mean, we absolutely have to speak the truth and say it out loud. But thinking that continuing to speak the truth over and over and over and over again in 50 different ways or raising our voices about it or making it more threatening is going to change people's behavior is not true. So there is a whole other set of conditions that you can create in your speaking, in your campaigns, in your every email you send out, every talk you give, every meeting you have that is almost opposite to what we think will be the way that you should try to change someone's mind. And a large part of this is creating a vision of the, the piece that is to be changed. Yeah, yeah. It's really about um, so much of our um, 
way of trying to make change for ourselves and for other people is about what's wrong, what we don't like, what the problem is, and really just machinating about the problem over and over and over again. And there is some motivational fuel that can come out of wanting to get away from something for sure. And there's truth in that old phrase, like, you know, people don't change until the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of changing. That's all true. But even more so, if you want to have long lasting and profound change, it's got to have a better future. It has to have a vision. There has to be a believable, realistic, and aspirational vision for the future. And so if you look at like Martin Luther King or, you know, people like that, you can, they said the problem, but they said it in like one sentence and then they went on to solutions and vision. And that's what really got people to change. So what would it look like in case, I mean, I keep thinking about climate activism. What would it look like an effective way? Because when I get faced with the, the climate statistics, I pretty much just panic and feel overwhelmed mm-hmm. and end up not doing anything. Yeah. I mean, I think things like Paul Hawkins' Drawdown is a really good place to start. It's, you know, 40 short chapters of like, here are literally 40 things that we can all do right now that if we did them, they would reduce the emissions by half or, you know, um, very practical, very doable. You know, I really like the people who talk about how if we made some of the changes that are being recommended, they're not only going to be better for the planet while we're sacrificing, they're probably going to be better for our quality of life too, because they're going to bring us together more. They're going to bring us into nature more. There's lots of reasons to engage in different climate change behaviors other than the actual outcome of climate change. You know, spending less time in the car, spending less time in the screen, not buying new stuff over and over and over again. And you find yourself in Costco less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You find yourself sharing with your community. Correct. Yeah. Growing food, you know, all these things that people think, oh my God, that's going to be terrible. It's like, actually, it's going to be so great. Like you don't even know how great it's going to be to sort of the uh, silver lining of the kinds of adaptations that we're going to need to make is going to be that we're more in community that, you know, love and service becomes central. I think that's really possible. So thinking holistically with the work that you're doing, is there a body centered element to um, the change mm-hmm. aspect? Yeah. I mean, mostly in the sense that um, our tagline is basically change. It's not what you think. And we mean it both ways. Like it's different than you think. And it's literally not what you think in your mind. A lot of change happens at the subconscious level or the non-conscious implicit level. And that level resides mostly in your body, you know, in your being. Some of it happens in your mind, but very little of it happens in your mind. And so that's the same when you're working with um, people that you're trying to create change in their minds, say back to our climate change example, you know, I'm trying to enlist that person's non-conscious beliefs more than I'm trying to change their conscious. Mm. So I could hammer away at like, here's the data and you need to believe me. And this guy said it and 60 scientists and blah, blah, blah. And the, their mind is like, no, it's not because people always say that stuff, but it's not true. Right. Because you're threatening their very identity. If you take away right. their, their belief system, then right. that's a foundational kind yeah. Of yeah. structure for them. But what you want to do is set up a set of conditions where 
you know, the presence that you hold when you're speaking to the person and the um, passion that you hold, the sort of, they get a sense of like, I don't agree with what you're saying, but there's some reason I want to stay in this conversation because I like the way you're talking to me. And I hear like a ring of truth in something about what you're saying. You're being authentic. You're not being condescending. So in a way you're reaching out to them heart to heart or belly to belly instead of mind to mind. And that's the same way in your own transformation that most of it is going to happen through meditative practices, through symbolic work, through dream, through imagination, imagery, art, poetry, music, nature, silence. I mean, this is all common sense, right? Coming from Esalen. Those are the things that actually create sort of those tectonic plate shifts that change everything else in your life. Yeah, it, it is interesting because I think that when we we don't have problems as, as humans identifying the fact that we do have kind of an issue to work with. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next step oftentimes is to apprehend it in a mental way, whether that's um, doing a search uh, on Instagram or going to the self-help section of the bookstore and selecting a book and reading through it. But I think where we often kind of stop moving is don't enlist the, the body's help. I'm curious in your clinical work is part of what you, well, I mean, all clinical work is transformational, I assume, but is, is part of what you're doing kind of explicitly working with people who wish to, to do some transformation? Yeah, I mean, here at Esalen and other places that I lead workshops is the most contact I come into with individuals who are doing their own change process. And then the other work is mostly training other psychotherapists and people who are working with people to use some of these concepts in their work. Yeah, but I think um, like for in our Esalen workshop right now, we probably have um, 65% of the people are therapists who will be taking this to use with their clients. Mm. And like I said, some of it's just really good reminders that people know it's common sense. It's, um, and other stuff they're like, Oh my God, I've been doing this totally backwards. You know, I, I want to try this new way of doing it, which is really fun. What about yourself? Is there, I mean, I assume that you have to sort of maintain your own transformational practices. Mm-hmm. What's a, a gr- an area of growth that you've been working with in the past, let's say year or so. Mm. Yeah. Well, the last year for me, I um, left my job of 18 years. My daughter moved away to college. I turned 50. I moved in with a man I love. I moved from the place I lived in 25 years. So, I mean, it's really been everything has changed externally in the last year. And um, I think one of the main um, personal edges has been, I had this, um, guided visualization, um, from a person about six months ago or nine months ago. And they asked us to talk to an ancestor or an archetypal figure that had something to tell us. And the archetypal figure I saw was a tall woman that I named the Walker and she had long hair and she had a you know, staff that she was walking with and she seemed to be like trekking through the Alps. And so I've been doing work with that archetypal image throughout the year because her attitude was very much like, I'm just going to walk and explore. Like I'm going to walk in. I'm, I just keep walking. And it seemed like she had been walking for lifetimes. Mm. You know, like I've walked through winters. I've walked through death. I've walked through everywhere. So very wise and experienced. And so I think when I was moving into that change, I was like, 
okay, but what if this and what if that and what if this and what if that? So when I saw her, she had on these backpacks and bags and she said to me, you know, I don't mind carrying these, but would you mind if we just put them down? Because it would be kind of easier for both of us if we could just walk through the next year without carrying these bags of fear or control or what's going to happen, what if. So I agreed to it in that imagery. And so since then, if I go to start to try to be like worried, you know, like, but, 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 but what if, what if, what if I just remember the walker and like, okay, remember you're just walking to a new location. You're walking to a new job. You're walking through a new chapter. And so that's a good example of the kind of symbolic work I think is really important in this domain. It's not something I could have said to myself in my mind, you know, if you're feeling fear, you should just put it down. Like having the symbol of the walker and the imagery of putting down the bags and having a symbol like that to kind of interact with and call upon is very, um, actually quite a lot more efficient, a lot more productive. You know, you can use those words. It's interesting. It is. It's, it's so interesting the way that you're able to kind of ride the line between being such um, an able, competent, articulate scientist and, uh, and, and more, uh, but to bring in the areas that are more nebulous, more people might, you know, just bringing in a psychic vision, mm-hmm. you know, the, the woo woo that I think people are, are afraid to consider and, and afraid to consider the intuition per mm-hmm. se. I mean, it's really time for us to normalize these kinds of conversations in the mainstream world. And, you know, most people, even when I talk about things that are pretty far out at a conservative conference, even if I get sort of flack, they'll come up to me at dinner afterwards and be like, okay, I had this one experience. Like, can I just talk to you about this real quick? So people are still in the closet about their, some of their deepest feelings and experiences. And, and I think there's also a lot of fear that somehow civilization or the enlightenment or rationalism is going to be contaminated somehow by metaphysics or superstition. And there's a good reason not to do that. That's why I've always loved science. Um, because when we did that, it did take us to a very dark place, just like over-reliance on science and technology has taken us to a dark place. So you really have to have both, I think. I enjoyed listening to a, a little interview that, that you did, I think, with a, on a podcast called Buddha at the Gas Pump, where um, you spoke about the fact that you had engaged at IONS, engaged in some scientific studies where the scientists, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't recall if you gave the example, but the scientists had gotten in touch with you and, and told you there's absolutely no way that we can consider this, even though the, the data showed that it was um, right. feasible. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of funding bias. It's hard to get funded for things that are outside the box. And there is a lot of publication bias, you know, so getting your results published is very difficult too. And, you know, I do think I don't really complain about it and say it's so unfair because the burden is on those of us who are pushing the envelope to, in a way, to prove it. You know, it it is up to us to um, stay strong and stay brave, stay centered. And now what I do, you know, I used to get kind of more offended when somebody was threatening because I felt threatened. I was like, I'm going to be ridiculed or humiliated or ostracized or, you know, but now I'm more like, 
That's interesting that you don't think this is interesting because I think it's one of the most fascinating things I've ever considered. Like, I just think it's one of the most incredible possibilities and the idea that there's data to back it up. How amazing. Could you give me an example of a type of study that kind of threatened the the over-rational mind? I think the one that I was referring to in the podcast was was either one where um, we were having people who looked at photographs and there were two photographs side by side that had been matched on several different variables to make sure that it was not easy to figure out whether the person was alive or dead, but one was alive and one was dead. And we would have people go and just guess or try to intuit which one is still alive and which one is dead. And we had a positive result showing that people could more than chance identify when someone was living or dead. Now, there are some other ways that you could argue that people might be able to do that. Like smokers, for example, have a certain look in their face that you can tell. So maybe people saw that, but we really did a very good job at trying to make sure that it wasn't visible. And so when we went to publish the paper, the journal actually published it and they said, you know, um, they, they, um, highlighted it on their social media as the featured article. It had like thousands of downloads, one of the most popular articles, and then they retracted it. And we basically got a letter saying, you know, we've decided that the content of the article, that the article doesn't match our publication standards. And we were like, well, what's the complaint? You know, is which part of the data analysis was wrong and which what's the critique? And they were like, we don't have to tell you what the critique was. We just are taking it down. And so we appealed and did all this stuff. And in the end, it was just like, you know, um, we just don't like it. Like, you know, we don't, and probably they just got flack from someone saying, look, if you're going to publish this crap, then, you know, you, you don't get my dollars or something happened. But there's been other situations where people really have stood up for it and said, you know, you, you can't move the goalposts, you know, if they use the scientific method to prove something that we think is impossible, we have to publish it. And so that's few and far between, but that's kind of cool when that happens. So what do you think it is about you that makes you able to be one of the people who kind of pushes the envelope or um, rides the edge? What is it that's um, foundational about you that kind of creates an unshakable self-talk or self-thought? Well, for one thing, I'm just obsessed with it. I just don't have a choice. Like I feel like it's kind of like when you talk to writers and they're like, you know, how do you become such a good writer? They're like, I can't help it. I just keep writing all the time. So one is a fast, you know, kind of endless fascination. So I do encourage people when you're moving into a career path, um, to try to make sure that you choose something that you're like almost endlessly fascinated by, um, because that really will help you withstand lots of obstacles in your career is just like, well, I'm just, I can't help it. I can't, I just want to find out more about that. I can't stop talking about it. I don't want to stop thinking about it. It's if I didn't get paid, this is what I would do kind of feeling. And the other is just to, you know, it's good to become aware of the places where you get triggered. And so if you do get sort of knocked over by something that somebody says, or, you know, you really have to interrogate inside yourself what just what's happening to me. It's not just that I am nobly fighting the cause. It's also that I'm scared of getting ridiculed or humiliated. So how can I deal with that? Mm. 
And I found, as I said, the best way to deal with it is to stay, well, it's back to what we were talking about before, stay with the vision. It's almost impossible that we know everything there is to know right now about human potential and the nature of reality. There's no way, yeah. right? And so that's one good response I have. And I stay with that myself. It's just people are like, that's not, you know, that's impossible. That's not even a good area of study. It's like, you know, we don't even know. We probably haven't scratched the surface yet of what we know about how things work and who we are and what we're capable of. So let's find out more. What do you think is the farthest out thing that you'd like to explore that you haven't been able to just top of your head? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of my fascinations has been if you expose people to environments because of epigenetics and all, most of our genes are expressed in an environment dependent fashion. So we know now that we have genes that are turned off and turned on and that they don't get turned on until they're exposed to a certain environment. Like some genes get turned on when you're exposed to extreme cold or extreme heat. I'm curious if we put people into situations either through virtual reality or through very intense imagery, psychedelics, things like that. Is it possible that we do have capacities that we're totally unaware of now because we have never been exposed to the environment? So that's one thing that I'm interested in is are there like, let's say that energy healers say that they can heal bone structure. You know, a few people maybe can do it and everybody else says that's insane. There's no way that could possibly happen. But we put people in VR and we decide, you know, okay, we're going to come up with a thing where you can actually see a blue light coming out of your hands and passing through your bones. And we want you to do that every day for 30 minutes for 10 weeks. Who knows? Maybe the ability to see it in VR for some reason signals the bone. It's like, oh, I, you should have told me. I would have done it if you just had showed me the blue light thing. So maybe that's possible. Yeah, I'm working with the John W. Brick Foundation, which is a John W. Brick Mental Health Foundation, which is focused on advancing, funding, promoting holistic methods of treating mental illness and promoting mental health, which has been a lifelong um, interest of mine. I was trained as a clinical psychologist and as a psychotherapist and went into the research world. And um, even in my research at IONS, ended up doing a project and writing a book on spiritual competencies for psychotherapists because um, mental health professionals in general right now don't really learn anything about consciousness or human potential or spirituality or religious practices. So there's an entire domain of people's lives that is not addressed in psychotherapy in general. Now there's strong, obviously still Jungian depth psychologists and transpersonal psychologists, but the vast majority of mental health, 95% of it is very brain focused, very talk focused. Cognitive behavioral. Yeah. Yeah. So really still trying to bring that old SLN vision into reality, which is, you know, Hey, we have to address these parts of people's being if we want them to have mental health and well-being. And so the foundation works on mind-body approaches and also exercise, nutrition, and movement. So really trying to bring the treatment of mental illness 
into the body below the neck, you know, that, and now we're learning a lot more in science about the role of the gut and the microbiome and all of this in mental health. So I think it's a really good time to try to make a big change in the way we treat mental health. And you're also aligned with the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation? Well, the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination is at the University of California, San Diego. So that's my other new love, which was founded by the author of 2001 and, you know, a science fiction writer who also really foresaw many of the technologies that became real in the future. So the Arthur C. Clarke Center is about how does imagination help us shape the future Um, or how does speculative culture, in other words, can we encourage each other to speculate about what's possible either fictionally or in nonfiction settings and have that be a pathway toward um, increasing new possibilities in the future. And so they have a space program where they've recently sent up stem cells to the International Space Station to see how they grow in zero gravity. They've got a, so that's like the astrophysics part. They have a science fiction writers workshop every summer where science fiction, you know, masters like George R. R. Martin will come teach new budding science fiction writers. Um, and then a neuroscience of imagination lab and a section on imagination tools. So how can we create curriculum and tools that help engineers, for example, be more imaginative in their work, which right now is pretty much sort of like go to your cubicle and be a human robot, you know? So it almost seems like you've made a career out of thinking outside of the box and also connecting, um, Mm -hmm. using uh, holistic principles to enhance the disciplines that you work in. Yeah, it's always been really important to me that We try to bridge between the wisdom of our deepest inner knowing and the world's wisdom traditions with the power of science and the rigorous aspects of science. And, you know, for so long, they've been completely separate. You know, you're either going to go one way or the other. You can't do both. But it turns out that in our modern culture, we really do need to bring in more imagination, noetic experiences and they're pro- you know they've been thought to be sort of like icing on the cake like you know once you achieve everything then you should go to Esalen and have workshops and sort of tune up your ferrari you know i'm saying like no that it's it's a fundamental human core human skill things like authenticity genuineness or present moment focus you know these things that the west never really thought of before Gestalt and Esalen and places like that started to make them more popular and that those are core skills that actually form the building blocks of mental health. They're not the cherry on top of the sundae. They're the dish, you know? Um, just a few more questions. Uh, I want to talk to you about imagination. I want to talk to you about a little bit about the state of awe. Mm-hmm. You're researching how introducing people to awe-inspiring ideas and environments can kind of stretch their imagination. So what are some ex- examples of awe-inspiring uh, environments? I mean, and what can this experience of awe do for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there has been a, um, a big upswing in research on awe. Um, about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I don't think there was a single research study. And then people like my colleagues, Dacher Keltner and Jonathan Haidt wrote some seminal original articles on what is it and is there a evolutionary purpose for awe or is there a psychological purpose? Um, and then there were, uh, 
bunch of studies funded by the Templeton Foundation on awe. And so the field has gotten bigger. And, you know, they were finding some pretty good results just from showing people images on a computer screen of mountains and oceans, much less taking them to the actual mountains and oceans. And they had studies where they would take people to a redwood grove or they would take people to a natural history museum and have them stand in front of the big T-Rex skeleton. So those were the ways that they were inducing awe. And they were showing that people had changes in their positive changes in their emotions and um, feeling like they had, you know, more time, feeling of greater meaning and purpose. And so I think that part of what we're trying to do, let's say with something like anxiety and depression, as I said earlier, I don't really think they can be eliminated. So when you're having a big negative emotion, I like to say it's sort of like a balloon blowing up in a bread box. It takes up every inch of space in your being. That's all you're feeling is the sadness or the anxiety or the anger. And I think a lot of previous approaches were how do we not have that balloon blow up? And I'm saying, let's make the bread box into the size of an airplane hanger. Like, let's make it huge so that the balloon is blowing up, but there's so much more spaciousness in the being or in the body or in the perspective that you're like, yeah, I can see I'm getting super anxious about that, but there's also a lot of other stuff going on, like my love and my commitment and my goals and my connection, like tons of other things in my being in addition to this anxiety. And I think awe inspiring experiences do that. They stretch you out. They literally make your eyes have wider vision because you have to widen your eyes to take in, let's say the whole Grand Canyon, open your jaw and your eyebrows go up and your heart feels like it opens. And you're really actually trying to get bigger to try to accommodate the information that you're getting. I think when people do that, they also, not only do they put things in perspective, but they start to come from a different place, a bigger, bigger perspective, bigger space. So one of the projects we're working on right now is the Edgar Mitchell awe induction overview effect VR experience, where we'll put people into Edgar's shoes on the moon and then in the space capsule. And we have his voice narrating and the people who are programming it are the people who programmed Apollo 11, which was an award-winning VR experience, very popular one. And, um, so it's a really incredible group of people working on it. And our hope is that people will have at least an echo of that experience of interconnectedness and amazement and wonder and mystery. And, um, that that will lead them not only to, maybe more sense of meaning and purpose and less hopelessness or meaninglessness, but also to actually caring more about the planet and the environment or seeing that people who live on the other side of the planet aren't different people. Those are still the same people, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a different location and culture, but they're not different people. They're the same people as all of us. Um, So then it makes it really hard for you to engage in behaviors that harm others while benefiting yourself. Mm. So you're extending people's in-group by giving them a much bigger perspective. It's so interesting to think about the use of futuristic technologies in order to, to solve what I think of as mostly modern 
problems. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering if people suffered as much from anxiety and depression during mm. sort of a pre-industrial era when the experience of awe and nature mm. was built into their um, everyday lives. It's hard to say, you know, it's really hard to say. Um, I, you know, I think it's, we have to remember that even though we have a lot of modern problems, quality of life on almost every indicator is better than it ever has been around the entire planet on average. Lifespan is longer, mortality is better, illness is better, germs have been, you know, diseases, like much less like blatant violence and, you know, torture and execution, you know, all of that stuff is better. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are sort of like, you know, we're just in the worst place the world has ever been. And it's like, no, that's not actually true, Mm -hmm. but we are in a very dangerous place. You know, I don't think back in the dark ages, they didn't have a method for destroying the entire planet, which we do have now several. So that's more dangerous. But in general, it's not worse. We're getting better. Yeah, so just kind of in an attempt to bring this discussion full circle, you spoke about in order to really affect transformation, one has to not only identify the problems that we're working with, but sort of um, present a vision of a world that's bettered. What would you say is your kind of vision of, of a world and how do people think in it mm-hmm. and how do they sort of uh, interact in it? Mm-hmm. I think my interest in science and inner wisdom will probably be revealed in my future vision, which is I really do believe in um, the incredible potential for technology to help us um, be more human. And to the extent that it detracts from being safer for humans and animals in the planet, I think we should reduce it. But to the extent that it supports us being more connected and more human, better to animals in the planet, we should use it. We should use it more than we're using it now to do that. Um, so I just envision a world where there's sort of a equal value placed on the inner world and the outer world. There's, you know, I can see health and healing environments that routinely prescribe mind-body healing methods. It's insane that they don't already because the data are there Um, and educational settings where we don't just teach kids reading, writing, and arithmetic and, you know, STEAM, even art and all that is good, but teach them how to make decisions and use their intuition and navigate internal challenges and you know, become aligned with the deepest source of their inspiration and find ways to be in flow states that make them more happier and more productive and efficient and same in business, you know, same in all of society's major institutions. And I guess I would call it re-enchanting the world. You know, I want there to be that kind of magic and mystery and wonder and awe and excitement, adventure, exploration suffused through everything. And then still really paying attention to tradition and, you know, like science as an institution has its place, just like other institutions have their place. And so, yeah, I think that's how I want to live my life is to have a the external approach be in alignment with the internal approach, but have everything have a little um, 
touch of uncertainty and whimsy in it. You have such a sense of equanimity and and sort of patience when you when you're speaking, and yet you've been able to do so much by by age fifty. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share sort of like a, a self care ritual or sort of a, a guiding principle that you have that sort of I don't know enables you to to be your your best and, and most whole self. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I've definitely gotten lost along the way and had times in my life that were completely out of balance and very difficult. And, you know, so I want to be, I think it's really important that we all talk about that because otherwise people are like, I'm, I'm the only one. It's like, no, every, pretty much everybody gets lost at certain times in their life and sometimes very lost and out of balance. Um, but the times that I've been able to get back into a really good balance really are the ecosystem of change. You know, it's having a story, looking at my story and seeing if it's actually working and do I need to author a new story for what I am and how I am and what I want life to be like. Like I remember one of those out of balance times was being CEO and president of IONS, which was such an amazing thing. But after a few years, you know, people would like crack open my door and be like, I just want to introduce you to Cassie. She's really busy. And then they'd close the door, you know, and I'd be like, wow, is that who I want to be? It's like, she's busy. That's the description. <laughs> you know. And, um, so I think we want to say, do, is that what I want to be my story? You know, no, it's not really what I, what do I want to be my story and how do I create the conditions for that to be different? And then, using tools and practices for those of us who are in the field. It's really easy to think that because I study it or because I write about it, because I teach about it, because I'm a therapist, I don't have to do it. Not true. You know, you have to do your own practice, um, first. Uh, so I do a morning practice every single morning with meditation and, you know, reflection and, I use tools, you know, if I like insight timer is a great meditation tool. You know, if I feel like I need some assistance, I definitely have tools that I use communities. I have a women's group that's been meeting for, I don't know, 15 years and every month and, um, other communities that are very, very supportive that if I start to feel off, I can relatively quickly get back on track by meeting with some of my community members. And then contexts, you know, items and places and spaces that feel like they're conducive to what I'm trying to make happen, but really paying attention to them. Like, I've got to make this room feel the way I want it to feel before I can really get the best work done. So let's put attention into the room. Um, and then healing, you know, really being attentive to when... I'm off balance, maybe needing healing, maybe needing to address something that I did that is staying with me. I said something that wasn't skillful to someone or, you know, staying current, I think is what ITP calls it, which is what Michael Murphy and George Leonard put together, Integral Transformative Practice. And that's another thing I might end with is there are a few different organizations and places that provide a lot of these things. Integral transformative practice is one of those. I think that's a really great one that has eight different practices and they meet weekly. And so it just includes the community, the healing, the context, the community, the tools, the practices, all of the stories 
in one kind of package. And that's why George and Michael were so genius because they saw people were having huge transformative experiences at Esalen and then they were either forgetting all about them or like going home and blowing up their lives. So, you know, they created ITP to do that. And there are other forms of practice. So I think those things are, I've put together my own, but I think those things are really useful. Um, if somebody wants to set into place structures that do it, there are already some pre-existing structures that work pretty well. Cassandra Veden, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 